Welcome to In Conversation. I'm Diana Campos. In Conversation features Dean Michael Horswell and faculty from Florida Atlantic University's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters, talking about research and creative activities that span the arts, humanities, and social sciences. For people who want to organize, mobilize, and create change for human rights, Insurgent Media from the Front by Chris Robay and Stephen Charbonneau highlights how grassroots media activism challenges hegemonic norms through the years. Its striking cover calls to their attention. The imagery on there is in and of itself an artistic reflection on surveillance, on this awareness of the catch-22 of technology. I think we treat technology here is Janus-faced, right? This is Stephen Charbonneau. It comes with powers and perils. Stephen Charbonneau is an associate professor of film studies and graduate director for the School of Communication and Multimedia Studies here at FAU. His two current projects are a biography of documentarian George C. Stoney, as well as a study of digital sound and documentary with a focus on the podcasting boom of late. Chris Robay is a professor of film and media studies. His newest book project concerns the relationship between video-slash-digital media activism and state repression pertaining to animal rights campaigns, counter-summit protesting, cop-watching, and anti-Muslim surveillance. His previous book was on anarchist-inflected video activism. His involvement in United Faculty of Florida helped create the conditions for such research to be produced in the first place. Both are Dean Horswell's guests for In Conversation. They sat down with Dean Horswell over a video call in October of 2020. Welcome, Dr. Chris Robay and Dr. Stephen Charbonneau to In Conversation. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you this afternoon. Thank you. Happy to be here, Dean Horswell. Yeah, definitely. So we're here to talk about your new book, Insurgent Media from the Front. And I tell you, with a title like that, I kind of wish we were at a coffee house. <laughs> but we're here in times of COVID, so we're doing this through the internet. But I was just curious if we could start out hearing how the two of you got into the topics, because both of you have done really fascinating work on kind of the edge of revolutionary filmmaking or revolutionary documentary making. And I wondered if you both could just tell us a little bit of how you got into the field and what brought you to this project. Sure. I'm kicking that to Stephen first. Uh, okay. Thanks, Chris. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, this is, I'll try to keep this brief because it could take the whole podcast. But I started out, I attended uh, New York University to School of the Arts. My ambition was to go into film production, but I did not get into film production. I was admitted instead into this program called Cinema Studies which was in Tisch School of the Arts, but was in fact not a practice-based degree, was in fact a studies-based degree focused on the history, theory, and criticism of the moving image. And so, of course, I, I attended, uh, I was happy to accept that admission and went with the idea of becoming a filmmaker. But of course, as soon as I got there, I immediately fell in love with the study of the politics, the history of the moving image, 
and did not want to let that go. And immediately the degree was making me realize that to study cinema, to study moving image, you have to know about a lot. And I wanted to know more more uh, about the film cultures I was learning about that required learning about a lot more than just film. And so by the end of that first year, I had been accepted into a double major of production and cinema studies. So hooray for me, right? I finally achieved the goal of getting in, but I realized, no, I didn't want to do it, that I'd seen the production track was going to be uh, overwhelming. It would limit my ability to learn about the world. And I had just fallen in love with cinema studies. And so it reached a point at the end of that first year to, and once I realized there was a job where you could talk about film and screen films and discuss them with other people, like that was all I needed to know. Because that's essentially what I subjected my mother to. Whenever I saw an interesting film in high school, I'd make her sit down and watch it and I would interrogate her when it was over. So I got a way to just continue to do that. Um, so by the end of that freshman year, I knew I wanted to do cinema studies for sure. And I double majored in political science. And then from there, I became very influenced by my professors and um, in political theory and film history. And then especially was influenced in my senior year by Professor George Stoney, who was a documentarian, a seminal American documentarian. And um, so, and that kind of sent me on my way. And I did work in between my degrees, but I knew I wanted to write and to continue thinking about film in a very political way. Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief too. Like, even right, I could go for forever. But I think really formatively for me, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, right outside New York City. You know, you could actually see it if you climbed on the top of my my high school and see the skyline uh, from there. So you could take the path easily in. And, you know, I was lucky. My mom took me into the city a lot, you know, during those times. And for whatever reason it was, she took me to, like, highly political art shows, you know, um, and museum shows, which I didn't realize at the time. So, like, already at this young age, you know, art and politics were intimately intertwined. I won't talk about one of the more kind of violent shows I saw. But one that I recall was seeing the Fluxus exhibit, you know, uh, that kind of 60s experimental conceptual art. And that really blew my mind. That really blew my mind the way in which art could intersect with daily life and start questioning things. I, I remember seeing a series of things during that exhibit. At the same time, too, this is during the 80s in New York City. It's a really vibrant no wave scene and punk rock scene that I was sneaking into, you know, uh, behind my mom's back. Cause you could take the path train in for like a dollar, you know, and there were no cell phones. Right? So nobody could find you where you went. So th there was that going on too, right? Where music was intimately intertwined with a politics, you know, going on. We're seeing Sonic Youth very young and sort of them putting drumsticks in their instruments. So even when it wasn't explicitly political, right, there seemed to be a political undertone in the ways in which they were repurposing music. So I think that just left a really deep imprint on me, you know, and I could go into all the more academic stuff, but I won't. I think that was really formative in that I had to like art was very central in my life. Politics was very central in my life. So where could I see those two things intertwining? So now it seems obvious, right? Of course, I'll look at like sort of politically engaged film or media and issues of aesthetics related to that, right? Because it has been a natural fit since I was a kid. Right. So that's fantastic. 
and so the book, let's not talk about the book. First of all, I love the title. Let me read that. It's uh, Insurgent Media from the Front. And we could probably unpack all of the words in that title. Uh, but, uh, you know, lots of kind of suggestive connections to revolutionary struggles, you know, down through history. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about the title and then tell us more about what the book is all about. Sure. Do you want me to start off, Chris? You can jump in anytime. Sure. Um, yeah. So the there's yeah many ways of approaching that title, um, Michael, and and one way to approach it is the term insurgent has been used by scholars studying um, media activism, and in particular, ethnographers Jeffrey Juris and Alex Kosnabish. They use the term insurgent in their ethnography of media activists. And for them, it means or helps them center at least this idea that media activism is about really mostly about trying to radically destabilize hegemonic norms, ingrained ways of seeing ourselves in the world and trying to unsettle those. And then another use, and this is sort of in the introduction, this may sound familiar, Chris, you know, another um, another. Uh, usage of it is from Hannah Burdett, who uses it as a term. She just talks about what she calls insurgent poetics. And this was, she uses it in her uh, review of indigenous literature. And for her there, there was a dialectic between insurgent poetics was about, on the one hand, protesting, but on the other hand, sort of advocating, you know, doing more than just destabilize. And I think so for us, I think we're sort of entering into that conversation, using it. And I think what I, when you look at our collection as a whole, I think what you see are um, both sides of those coin of that coin essentially. On the one hand, seeking to use media to shock, to compel, or unsettle ways of thinking, but also I think we see our contributors, the filmmakers. And the experiences they write about, you see people struggling with whether that's enough too, um, and trying to figure out other ways of not just unsettling, but also promoting new ways of thinking and seeing the world. And um, and and this, I think, Chris, this is your phrasing in the in the intro too. In general, I think our collection is good at showing how insurgent media terrain is always contradictory. You're kind of negotiating these things, destabilize, assert, but also having to challenge hegemonic ways of seeing, but also being of those hegemonic social relations as well. And so it's really, um, contra- again, to use Chris's phrase, I think, from this, uh, con- it's very contradictory terrain and navigating that in different ways. The only thing I'll add on that, there is this kind of secret uh, reference that the title gets to, which I don't think we do mention in our our intro, and I think we talked about this when we were originally doing it, but it's gesturing towards uh, ACT UP in the early 90s, because I believe the collective Testing the Limits that was affiliated with ACT UP did a video, their last one called Voices from the Front. Right, that didn't get a lot of screening itself. So I thought, you know, this was kind of a hidden gesture towards that and just also towards the past, you know, embedded within our title. And the um, collection was really conscientious of trying to pick up older movements too, to show like how the contemporary now media activism is not from nowhere, right? But has lineages to other things. So history is very 
heavy throughout the collection in ways I think often from communication scholars side, it gets lost that historical aspect. That's right. Hmm. I thought the cover of the book is, is very suggestive of, I guess, the themes that you're covering in it, uh, a very powerful image on the cover. I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit and tell us about how that opening image of the book relates to the contents. Sure. So the cover image was something that struck both of us. It's actually a photograph of an exhibition and the imagery on there, it, it's, it is in and of itself an artistic reflection on surveillance, on this awareness of the catch-22 of technology. I think, And I think, Chris, again, I'm quoting, I think I recognize your language <laughs> when you say we treat technology here as Janus-faced, right? It comes with powers and perils. And so that the imagery in that exhibition, it really struck us as drawing attention to that. And I guess if I can also give examples, you know, from work that's in the anthology, um, Cara Andrade, you know, she writes a chapter about activists in Mexico who use WhatsApp to organize, to mobilize, and to generate their activism, but also it comes with problems that allowed for some surveillance that leads to harm to those very activists. And so I think the cover suggests um, both the possibilities of using it as well as the risks of it. Yeah, when we saw it, we both knew that was going to be the cover. I, I, I pretty like we were showing each other a bunch of different images and we're like, yeah, okay, this, that. And then that one sort of I forgot who got it, if it was you or me, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, but we we're both kind of like, really, like, that's it. And I think just extending what what Stephen was already saying, like, that's a multi-channel work on there shown in an institution. So it also appeals to us the way it kind of repurposes videos in different and unanticipated ways, which we feel in many ways the communities and activists who are part of the collection and the scholars who are speaking about those communities also are repurposing video or whatever media it might be for their own kind of community organizing, self-determination, etc. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned several types of media so far. You've mentioned WhatsApp, which is you know, a communication app on telephones. And then you've mentioned video, you've mentioned surveillance video. Could you just kind of give us a, uh, an overview of how you define media and insurgent media itself are there and i know this dates back you know you, you you talk about in the introduction dating back you know to 1940s we we can look at insurgent media and i'm just wondering if you could maybe uh, talk a little bit more about the breadth of the study that you've done yeah if i could just jump in on that too in that i think one thing that the collection does and Stephen, my work and the contributors is like really not wanting to fetishize the media part so I think the insurgent part is how the media is employed, the practice embedded within. So it's not so much medium specific. It could be film. It could be video. It could be WhatsApp. It could be whatever. It depends on, you know, the, the, the practices that it's being put a part of. So uh, Tanya Goldman, who writes about the 1940s, you know, speaks about this uh, film Men in Dust that is distributed by and exhibited by, in many ways, support for the Communist Party, USA, and how it's being used to actually build up strike funds and uh, support strikes across the country. You know, later today, we have AIDS activist uh, 
Alexander Yuhas talking to other people, you know, about the functionality of that and the purpose it played, right? What are the politics of visibility in an age, particularly during the late 80s, where, uh, you know, people living with AIDS were classified as AIDS victims, right, quote unquote, uh, and the power of reach. I think the insurgent part to me is the context in which the media is being deployed, not so much the media itself. Mm -hmm. And I I would add to that a a theme in this book is not just, again, the particular medium at hand. And again, it's really hard to disentangle different types of media from one another nowadays, right? So I think what matters, what really comes out um, of the book is questions of infrastructure and questions of access, distribution, those larger networks that we have to think about in order for work to signify, to make connections, to foster and engender change as well. And what you see in a lot of these contributions. And it, you know, it really is an honor to be able to share the work from these scholars to the world. And in some ways, editing something with Chris was much more rewarding than writing my own monograph. Um, but you see all of it through the scholarly voices and the practical voices, people struggling with what it means or how to get the work out, how to deal with lack of funds, but also to look at past examples where, like Tanya Goldman's piece, again, that Chris just mentioned, looking at the Workers International Relief and how there was funding there to actually, and then and then you have sharing of um, a box office profits with strike funds for workers and finding those, in, that infrastructural connections and networks of solidarity that really start to help. And I think that those conversations, you can see where it's working and where it's not. And I think that's so useful now when we think about in light of Black Lives Matter and everything, like what kind of infrastructural support can we bring to keep these conversations going? I wanted to ask you about the distribution of these pieces you know, how do they normally get out into the public? I understand when they might be a piece that is part of a, an organization or, you know, sort of a closed network of activists, but to create maybe even more impactful change, uh, do they need to get out into the greater society? And, and how does that happen? Do we have examples of, of these kinds of media getting out and really having an impact more, you know, beyond the, the, the community itself? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I, I don't want to disregard the community itself because I think that's really an important aspect too, and it can be very large, actually. I mean, if we're talking about like the working class you know, right. of like right. the 40s, that's huge yeah. in terms sure. of that. So, you know, I don't want to underestimate narrow broadcasting, but I do think of a piece by the Khalil brothers that we have, right? An interview of uh, Ojibwe brothers who actually are sort of contemplating that because they started off in the documentary realm and they recently kind of engaged in fictional cinema, right? And they were thinking, well, okay, how can we deal with fictional cinema with an Ojibwe type of form, right? We can't use the same kind of forms that fiction cinema uses because it's settler colonialist and has deep problems with it. So how can we kind of repurpose the form in a fictional way? Because they do say during that interview, I think, you know, we're kind of tired of speaking to people who already agree with us. Uh, documentary. 
whether that actually reaches the the market that they want. I mean, among filmmakers and media makers, that's always a contested terrain. If you should be striving for kind of a wider audience and what gets compromised in that, or do you maintain a much more, you know, kind of micro niche audience, but it's not really about the audience, right? It's about intersecting with other practices that you're building off of itself. So the, the film or the media itself is not the end point but the means to kind of further uh, community organizing self-determination. And I would add, even when you do, let's say, reach an audience, another theme in the book is exhibition. And maybe you reach that point where you're, I mean, I think the Khalil brothers, you're right, because I think they talk also about exhibition and they're at this documentary film festival and they've screened it and well, now what? <laughs> you know, what, is this really the end point? Did we really move the ball here in terms of encouraging people to think differently about settler colonial relations? Or is this making a bunch of white people feel better about themselves? And I don't know. And it's another theme in a chapter by Ezra Winton, who is an exhibitor, works with Cinema Politica in Canada, and has a critique of the film festival format, you know, and how insular it can be and how compromised it can be and, and the need to think about a different kind of format that plugs people into whether it's organizations or campaigns or whatever. And I would go back to Tanya Goldman's chapter again, people sharing box office receipts to strike funds or, you know, just to try to rethink the format so you can reach people, but but then what? You know, that's another theme. Mm. Right. Um, Stephen, you mentioned earlier Black Lives Matter. And I, I was wondering if I know your book probably was already in production by the time Black Lives Matter had their resurgence this summer. But I was curious if you thought anything about the role media played this summer in that resurgence. Are you, are you seeing, you know, what you're, you're defining as insurgent media uh, supporting that movement that has come back up? In, in the United States this summer? Yes, um, of course. And I would go back to the theme of destabilizing, but also um, putting something forward too. So I think it's such a powerful moment right now in terms of destabilizing the way people see our social relations, the way they see, um, you know, white normativity, the way they see the police. Um, and so there's a lot of destabilizing going on. And I think then, then the pivot is to finding ways to sustain that, to finding the um, organizational support infrastructure to keep these conversations going. And I think what's powerful about that this moment is, and Dean Horswell, you're, you're at the center of this too, is just we can see in some ways how this is this uh, Black Lives Matter moment is forcing conversations and deep-seated looks into how we operate, but also we need to keep it going too. So that's certainly, um, I come back to that theme for sure. So uh, yeah, off of that too, just to, I mean, I think one thing we have to disabuse too it's like when these things suddenly flare back into view it doesn't mean there's not long-term work going on all along so you know i was doing work in minneapolis with the somali american communities there from 2015 to to roughly 2019 i mean i'm still in contact with them so doing a very different thing focusing on philando castile and sort of resistance against countering violent extremism programs Etc. and sort of the organizing going around with Muslim American communities. So 
it's interesting seeing like George Floyd reflare this up, but there really was an infrastructure there that pre-existed that. And I think it's really important for, you know, scholars. And I think our collection does this of mapping those trajectories and the invisible terrain beneath when it becomes visible itself, or it just seems suddenly anew, but they're really building off of longer infrastructures it, um, itself. I, I make a point in a Another article I write of sort of cop watching coming, at least one group of cop watchers in New York City called El Grito de Sunset Park, really having origins uh, back to the Young Lords, uh, right? a politically active group from the late 60s, early 70s there uh, that you wouldn't notice if you just kind of look at their sudden, you know, coming up in the, in the 2000s itself. So I just wanted to mark that, right, there's all these ways in which Although we're seeing very visible stuff right now that's important for all the reasons Stephen has identified, that there's a lot of organizing often between those moments that are going on. And it's really kind of our job as scholars to track that type of connections. Right. And thinking a little bit towards the future, do you see in new media forms that we haven't even imagined yet coming into being uh, around? Uh, activism and, and protest and, and political change? Mm. Boy, no doubt. I think that these questions will persist, though, around access, distribution, infrastructure, and you know something else, Chris, too, that comes to mind, I think, again, a point we make, or you may <laughs> think, was that access can be different from infrastructure and control. So we can have access to WhatsApp. That doesn't mean we have control over it. And so I just think that's a great question. It's almost, it's hard to answer that, but I do think that's why these themes of, of access, infrastructure, control, support, funding, it's all really important and is not going away. You know, I guess in my, you know, I'm certainly not an expert, but just observing what's happened last five to 10 years, it seems like the, the simple telephone of camera has changed the conversation around policing, police reform, because people were able to witness and actually record the atrocities that i don't know if you would define that as insurgent media but it did circulate pretty quickly Mm -hmm. and it may have inspired the protests and and the things that are trying to to affect change uh, around policing so i i don't know if there's you know like and i know i i hear about tiktok and all these Mm -hmm. other forms and i don't know if those are sort of futuristic ways in which insurgent media could get distributed that could be less controllable mm-hmm. any kind of government or what have you. Yeah, I think you're right, Michael, on a lot of that stuff. Like communication scholars speak about the logic of connective action as a result of like social media. So in other words, things are more personalized, they're more individuated, right? It's less sort of a collective type of action type of thing, which I think is overstated to some degree. But I think you're getting at a good thing here of like, well, what did commercial, social, in quotes, unquote, media do to kind of media activism through a highly sort of extractive platform? I think also you're gesturing to a really good thing too about, because I'm, I'm thinking about writing this with one of our contributors of the anthology, uh, Angela Wyo, we've been talking about writing an article about live streaming. And is this sort of a new genre, you know, because I think there is something, or I, I don't have an answer totally, but we do feel there's something qualitatively different, right, in the live stream that doesn't map onto older forms of filmmaking because of the way in which it's operating uh, real time and also informing actions as well as representing them, right? We haven't totally worked this out, but I think you're right. There's these 
series of things, you know, emerging that we really have to theorize through in older notions of film and media studies, although useful and definitely shouldn't be abandoned, need to be kind of retooled to kind of understand these newer forms uh, occurring. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion of your new book, Insurgent Media from the Front. It's, I know it's an important contribution to the field. And so congratulations on the work. Thanks. Thank you. I'm always curious, and of course, I'm just so proud of the faculty of our College of Arts and Letters. And of course, you come from the School of Communication and Multimedia Studies. I'm just curious, what are your next projects that you're working on? So I'll go first, Chris. Um, so just to even circle back to my <laughs> introduction to cinema studies and what inspired me to focus on the on media activism and documentary, I mean, I have a long-term project where I am researching a biography of George C. Stoney, the documentarian I mentioned earlier, who um, was described as the, as when he passed away in 2012, was described as the quote unquote dean of the American documentary. So I'm speaking to a dean, so I thought I'd use that quote. <laughs> but then that's a long-term project. The other project is to go back to something Chris said too, a theme from this book is thinking about you know, the historicity of new media and being aware of the historical inflections of new media. And so I've been teaching a digital documentary class for the last couple of years in our school. And so I'm working presently on digital sound, digital documentary, and and podcasting. Actually, it's run a podcast. So thinking about recent podcasts that force us to rethink um, our historical frames and whether it's the Nicole Hannah-Jones Project 1619 or, or many others um, that make us think about history in different ways through through sound. Mm, fascinating. Totally. Uh, yeah, so I'm finishing up a project called Tentatively Criminalizing Dissent, Community Media Activism and State Repression, kind of dark stuff sort of looking at how various um, communities are being impacted by various kinds of state repression and how they're employing different forms of media, not just digital, you know, old forms of media, like face-to-face talking to one another as resistance. So it looks at four different areas. Uh, One, as I mentioned sort of earlier in the discussion, uh, Puerto Rican groups in New York City doing cop watching and community organizing looking at counter-summit protesters and how the filming of protests and conventions is being criminalized. Looking particularly in Minneapolis, the Cedar Riverside community, how Somali-American folk are fighting this program called Countering Violent Extremism, and just Islamophobia in general through popular culture, such as certain shows that were about to go on, out on HBO that they resisted and actually helped stop. And then finally, about undercover animal rights activists undercover as um, employees at factory farms. And interestingly enough, what's criminalized is not the animal abuse, but the filming of this in certain states. So the fighting of that, and uh, it's just interesting, earlier today I was talking to an undercover investigator with this kind of fascinating work of what it means to be acting a different part and having a camera on your body and filming. So... My friend, uh, Angela Wyo, uses this term I like a lot, calling it vernacular type of media practices, right? How everyday people are using this to sort of employ in their struggles. So that's what the book is concerning. Well, I can't wait to have you back to in conversation and talk about the next two books you're working on. So congratulations. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you.
You've been listening to Dr. Charbonneau, Dr. Robay, and Dean Michael Horswell of FAU's Dorothy F. Schmidt College of Arts and Letters in conversation. They were recorded in October of 2020. In Conversation is a production of FAU School of Communication and Multimedia Studies. I'm Diana Campos. All of us thank you for listening. We invite you to join us for another edition of In Conversation. Listen for In Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.